Welcome to Abide in Liberty, a podcast empowering patriots everywhere to re-enthrone faith, family, and freedom as the bedrock pillars of liberty in education, our communities, and our nation. Welcome back, patriots, to another episode of Abide in Liberty. We are in the middle of going through the principles that uh, were enshrined in the Constitution as taken from the book 5,000-Year Leap by Cleon Skousen. Again, if you found any of this interesting, I'm only scratching the surface, and I'm picking out one or two of my favorite quotes to address each of these principles, and there are many, many more. So if you find this interesting, I highly recommend uh, reading that book and getting a a more in-depth view of each of these principles. I do not have any affiliate relationship um, with the publishers of that book, but it is certainly a worthwhile read. Last week, we spent some time talking about how the United States of America is a republic and what that means, as well as looking at the importance of the distinction between whether sovereign authority rests with the people or rests with a king and what that meant for the American Revolution, how that made the fact that the majority chose to set up a new government, that that in and of itself, because it was a majority, because it was in response to tyrannical practices by the current government, the founding fathers were completely justified, whereas it's a little bit of a different story with the Civil War. Also, just a quick reminder, we are reading a lot from a couple of very influential thinkers that heavily influenced the founding fathers and their thinking in relationship to government. Number one, and is, of course, the Bible. Number kind of two and three are a guy named William Blackstone and John Locke. These are both Englishmen who wrote extensively on government and the role that divine law and God have in government and in natural on unalienable rights. If you're a little bit behind on the podcast, I would recommend going back to the first series, the first in the series where we talk about the 5,000-year leap to make sure you're all up to speed because these principles do build one upon another. So, We're going to be referring back to things that we've already talked about both this week and in the coming weeks. So if you don't have that foundation, you may feel just a tiny bit lost. I'll do my best, though, to briefly summarize as we go. All right, another principle that the Founding Fathers believed strongly in was that the Constitution had to be written in a way to protect people against human frailty. They believed very strongly that we, the common people under this government, should be very suspicious and distrustful of power. Now, it's not hard to imagine why they would think that. They were very suspicious and distrustful of power. They had experienced government abuse of power before and kind of assumed that anybody given too much power would abuse it at some point. It was This was kind of their view of human nature. And history does bear that out, does bear out that power does corrupt and that even good people given too much power can become abusive of it. Federalist paper number 25 says, for it is a truth which the experience of all ages has attested that the people are commonly most in danger when the means of injuring their rights are in possession of those toward whom they entertain the least suspicion. So we're in the most danger when there is a person or when there are people in power that we aren't very suspicious of because that's when they can sneak in and do things under the radar because we're not watching them as closely as we should be. 
Thomas Jefferson said, It would be a dangerous delusion where a confidence in the men of our choice to silence our fears for the safety of our rights. That confidence is everywhere the parent of despotism. Free government is founded in jealousy and not in confidence. It is jealousy and not confidence which prescribes limited constitution to bind down those whom we are obliged to trust with power, that our constitution has accordingly fixed the limits to which and no farther our confidence may go. In question of power, then, let no more be said of confidence in man, but bind him down from mischief by the chains of the constitution. The constitution is a a document of freedom for everybody else, but it's meant to be kind of a prison wall for those in power, chains that shackle them and prevent them from doing more than we want them to. And that was the way, that was the, way the, the founding fathers saw the Constitution. It was to protect us against people doing things that they shouldn't be doing. George Washington said, government is not reason. It is not eloquence. It is force. Like fire, it is a dangerous servant and a fearful master. Like fire that is great for so many things. You have to keep it contained within a fire ring or in a fireplace, right? There's always ways that we're trying to contain and protect against heat. We can't let it get out of control. If it escapes its bounds, then it can lay waste to, to neighborhoods and forests. It can be incredibly, incredibly destructive. James Madison said, if angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. So if people were perfect, we could have a single king that could do everything and we could be completely trusting that they would be okay, but people aren't perfect. This is something that is echoed by um, King Mosiah in the Book of Mormon. At the end of his life, he decided to relinquish the throne and set up a government that was determined by voting, by people choosing what they wanted and who they wanted to lead them. And he said the same thing. It would be good for you to have a king if you could always be sure to have a just one. If you could always be sure that you had an angel for a king, then yeah, a king is way easier, right? They can get things done faster. Um, There's a lot, you know, presumably there could be a lot less cost because you have a lot fewer people running the government. Um, So it would be great to have that decisive, just righteous action all the time. But because men are not always angels, because men are imperfect, we need something to to control and limit those leaders. And that was the intent of the Constitution. This this seems kind of weird to say that this is a principle of freedom, that men and women are imperfect, that human nature is corruptible, that people, when they are given power, invariably will abuse it at some point, but that's a true principle. And you only have to look at history to see that it's true. It's actually really interesting. I'm reading a book right now. It's Alexander Hamilton, but I'm at the part where it's going through and it talks through the conflict that Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson had. And Alexander Hamilton, as soon as he became treasury secretary under the first president, George Washington, he immediately started trying to justify the federal government doing more. So he was one of the first ones to point out, oh, there's this necessary and proper clause. So we're supposed to be able to lay taxes 
um, in order to support the government and do all things necessary and proper to be able to collect those taxes. And he was the first one to say necessary and proper. Hmm, that means a central bank. That means we need to set up a central bank. We need to set up this robust collection uh, or this robust system of tax collectors and free flow of finances through the central bank. And Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, who were kind of on the outs at this point, were watching this freaking out, saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're already trying to stretch the bounds of the Constitution. Now, Alexander Hamilton, and I've, uh, I'm reading the book, and I'm going to go off on a little tangent here. The book I'm reading is the one that the play was based off of. And there are so many points. Yes, Alexander Hamilton did have an affair. That There's one that's documented. And I really struggle with this author by how in so many different instances, he's trying to infer and see additional debauchery into Alexander Hamilton that is simply not documented. So he makes a lot of inferences. And from what I've heard, the play really plays up on that. Alexander Hamilton, in reality, was a really incredible man. He was a believer. He messed up. He fixed it. And by all accounts, was a devoted father um, and husband after that point. But anyways, I'll get back on the subject now. But Alexander Hamilton was an incredible founding father. He was brilliant. He was self-sacrificing. He was accused constantly of enriching himself while treasury secretary. And they could never prove it. He never did and impoverished himself for many, many years while he was in public service. Um, A devout Christian. Anyways, great, great guy. But even he, and he was one of the, the authors of the Federalist Papers that was trying to help everyone get comfortable with the fact that this constitution was espousing limited federal government, not too much power to the federal government. So even he, as soon as he saw that there's some really good things I could do, if I had a little bit more authority, if I could stretch the bounds of the constitution here, I could do so much good for this country and help launch it economically and pay off its debt faster. And he started stretching his boundaries. And the political process reigned that in after a couple election cycles when Washington stepped down, Alexander Hamilton lost power. And after John Adams, the Republicans came into power with Thomas Jefferson and and Alexander Hamilton was out at that point. He kind of lost his political authority by the time and his political clout by the time Thomas Jefferson became president. And Jefferson, the entire time that this was going on, was just tearing down all of the overreach that the the government had supposedly done under George Washington and um, under the guidance of Alexander Hamilton as the Treasury Secretary. But again, this book kind of points out an interesting case. During um, John Adams' presidency, the Federalists, which was the opposing political party to the Republicans, passed a series of acts called the, um, the Sedition Acts. And basically, this meant if you spec if you were speaking out against government officials in power, you could be imprisoned and fined for it. Um, so, for political opponents, this was you couldn't you couldn't speak out against things that you didn't agree with. And of course, Thomas Jefferson and the Republican Party and James Madison thought this was just terrible. But as soon as they were in power, and after several years of being um, president. And the attacks that were thrown at Thomas Jefferson, he started even wanting to crack down on some of these, um, some of these attacks on him and his policies and his presidency. He sued a newspaper for libel and for saying things about him that weren't true and that he didn't like. So even this champion of 
free speech and of limited government still stretched the bounds once he was in power. And again, I'm not going to go into Thomas Jefferson. He was another incredible person, and we'll spend another day just on him and countering some of the lies, quite honestly, that are out there about Thomas Jefferson. But another incredible patriot who knew and believed all the right principles and all the right things when he gained power started to flex his muscles beyond what he should have. And one of the biggest successes of his presidency, the Louisiana Purchase, it's kind of not in the Constitution that the president can decide all on his own to purchase half a continent of land. That should have gone through Congress, yet he did it and was applauded for it. Now, that's something that if, on the flip side, he had seen George Washington or Alexander Hamilton trying to push for, he would have been livid with. But once he had a little bit of power, it stretched. And so there's there's this natural tendency. This is human nature to press the bounds and try and get more and do more. And a lot of it is from good intentions, right? The Louisiana Purchase was a screaming deal. And it was ultimately turned out to be a really good thing that we got it. But the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And good people under good intentions sometimes do things that they shouldn't when they're given power. So that's a true principle. And even some of the best people who knew of that propensity, when they were writing in these checks and balances, they weren't writing in these checks and balances for some obscure person down the road. Yes, that was part of it, but these were the leaders of the country. They knew that at some point there was a very good chance many of those founders would be in positions of power themselves. They were shackling themselves against their own human frailties. They believed these principles so completely that they were willing to tie their own hands, well knowing that those shackles would come and be applied to them at some point. That's impressive. That is really cool. All right. Now, I said last week that I really wanted to dive in a little bit more talking about the importance of property rights. A couple of weeks ago, I kind of introduced this idea of the three primary unalienable rights that the founders talked about, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or life, liberty, and the pursuit of property, or life, liberty, and property. Those are the three big ones that they all talked about a lot. And it doesn't you know, coming from a Christian perspective, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense that property and getting stuff should be foundational to our happiness and foundational to freedom. But let's look through and kind of logically think through what happens without property rights, without the ability to own and protect your property. And I'm going to go so far, and I'm kind of echoing what's in the 5,000-year leap, that protecting property rights is not just necessary so that you can own stuff, but Protecting property rights is also directly related to how well you're able to protect life and freedom in general. This is not only is life, liberty, and property, not, not only is property kind of a one of the third of the top three, it is the hinge point of the other two. Without protection of property, the other two cannot happen. And here's why. So without property rights, without the ability to make sure that the things that you own, you can hold on to, the lazy and covetous neighbor or neighbors could come in and take the fruits of my hard-earned labor if they're stronger than I am. Now, this could be a neighbor. This could be neighbors. This could be a government. If it's strong enough, it can come in and take away what I've worked for, what I've worked hard for. 
Now, and this is exactly what happens in communism, right? Big government comes in, takes away property rights. Government now owns it, and there's not really anything you can do. And as we think through logically what happens next, we see this play out in communist experiments throughout history. So if that can happen, if anybody can come in and take my stuff just because they're bigger or stronger than I am and I can't keep that property safe, then that destroys the incentive of the industrious people to develop the property that they have to improve, to grow and do more. And when that incentive's gone, you know, you've got these roving bands of people going around trying to take things by force that impels everybody. Everybody who would work hard, you're impelled to remain on a bare subsistence, hand-to-mouth survival because accumulating anything would invite attack. And that kind of attack, you know, that, that threatens life safety. If there's a threat of attack, if you have things, you're not safe personally. If you've got these bands that can come and take whatever they want, then your personal life and your safety is at risk. Also, it threatens your the safety of your life by if if you're not allowed to accumulate and if accumulating things invites attack, then what incentive do you have to store away for hard times? So in the case of famine, you're not prepared. And if the threat is robbed and beaten today versus maybe a famine comes and I might starve, you're going to respond to that immediate threat before the long-term one. So saving... Um, storing up against the winter or against hard times goes away. And that is a huge threat to your life. And if you're living that kind of an existence, it is not a free one. You are not free to pursue your dreams because somebody could come in and swoop them away. So property is central to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Without property, the rest of it all falls apart. John Adams said, the moment the idea is admitted into society, that property is not as sacred as the laws of God and that there is not a force of law in public justice to protect it, anarchy and tyranny commence. Property must be secured or liberty cannot exist. Now, this raises some real issues about government welfare. Government welfare is taking from those who have and giving to those who have not. And really, the modern welfare state began during the Great Depression, where people were genuinely hurting. And again, this is where the road to hell is paved with good intentions. People come up with ideas, and because, and we really want to help these people, I, I believe that government leaders back then genuinely wanted to help a country and people who were just being hammered by the Great Depression, by this terrible, terrible drought. But anytime you make a decision that is divorced from principle, it will create problems. And there are problems with our current welfare system. You know, when I was in college taking personal finance courses on how to prepare for the future, the general consensus is you can't trust Social Security is going to be there. So don't plan on it. If it's still there by the time you retire, then you're lucky. But don't, don't plan on it. I mean, it's this is not a healthy system. And it violates this principle of taking from one and giving to another. And before the Great Depression, um, federal aid to private charity to help individuals was deemed constitutional. They, people had tried it, and it had been shut down time after time after time by the Supreme Court. But things were desperate enough during the Great Depression that we ignore this principle that we had believed so long and um, kind of ran with it. So 
there is no power in the Constitution given to the federal government to care for the poor. So you might ask, so what do we do about the poor then? The government's not going to take care of them. Who will? And the answer is, according to the Constitution, anybody except the federal government should take care of that. The poor existed before the Great Depression. The poor existed before um, Social Security or Medicare or any of these things. And private charities and states took care of it. According to the Constitution, anything that isn't delegated to the federal government is reserved to the states and its people. And they did. They did. In fact, a lot of scholars have gone back and looked at all the programs that the government implemented during the Great Depression and whether they actually made a difference in accelerating the Great the end of it is questionable. Many think that it prolonged it. And it was the private charities, the churches that were giving food and shelter that made the biggest difference. It was, it was the people that were doing it. You might think people can't afford to do that. Well, if you're not paying huge income tax rates, you do have a little bit more money to go and be charitable. And that's where the majority of those taxes go. It's defense and welfare. Grover Cleveland in his day, he was president of the United States, vetoed legislation that would have used federal taxes for welfare. And he said, though the people support the government, the government should not support the people. The friendliness and charity of our countrymen can always be relied upon to relieve their fellow citizens in misfortune. Federal aid encourages the expectation of paternal care on the part of our government and weakens the sturdiness of our national character. While it prevents indulgence, among our people of that kindly sentiment and conduct which strengthened the bond of common brotherhood. We have so completely violated this principle in recent years, especially that people have chosen to stay on welfare whether that, rather than go back to work after COVID and everywhere. Employers are desperate to find workers that they had just two or three years ago, but they're not to be found because we have so engendered in our populace this reliance on paternal care from the government, that we're not doing it ourselves. Our founding fathers knew that the secret to a prosperous society was limited government and allowing people to solve problems, to be charitable, to be kind, and to do the right thing. And when the government, the federal government steps in and removes all those good incentives, there are problems. There are major problems. And next week, we're going to look at how some of that has um, impacted things like the free market. We're also going to jump into and start looking at the principles of separation of powers and checks and balances and just how revolutionary those were. Thank you for listening to Abide in Liberty. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and share this with friends and family. In the meantime, Keep up with the show online at AbideInLiberty.com. Also, if you'd like to help our K-12 bless and educate more families, contact us by visiting LibertyYouthAcademy.org. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, and be strong.